The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We're going to continue our study of 1 Thessalonians this morning. Now, we spent the last couple weeks looking at the idea that all Christians are called to be disciples of Christ. And I make that distinction between a Christian and a disciple. If you've been listening to me for any length of time, you're familiar with that now. But as Christians, we're called to live in obedience to the commands of Scripture. We're called to abide in Christ. We're called to live in communion with Him. And we took uh, that two-week detour because the commands we're looking at in this closing part of 1 Thessalonians, uh, I think really make us aware that this is something we can't do in and of ourselves. All right, It's impossible apart from dependence upon the Spirit of God. It takes a supernatural power to live like this. Now, all of God's commands in the Bible are beyond our ability to obey in the flesh. Hopefully we realize that. So we need to walk in the Spirit. We're called to walk supernaturally. Now to see just how high of a calling this is we have, just for example, look at what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5.1. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now be here is a present imperative and has the idea to become. We're to become imitators of God. We're to develop into this person who is literally through their life imitating Yahweh. Now the Greek word for imitator here is mimetes. It's a word from which we get our word mimic. All right, Mimic, copy something. What it denotes literally is an actor who spends time and energy studying a character with the view of reproducing it. Okay, can you get that picture? You understand what it's saying? Okay, we're studying God. We're getting to know Him. Why? So we can act like He acts. So this is a command, not a suggestion. Be imitators of Yahweh. So the constant call of the Christian is to be like Him. And it's Yahweh's purpose that each of us reflect the image of our Father. Now, obviously there are things about Yahweh we can't imitate. Right? Theologians call these Yahweh's incommunicable attributes. Things he shares, he doesn't share with anybody else. This is him. Yahweh's self sufficiency, his sovereignty, his omnipresent, his omniscient. We can't share that. They belong to him alone. But Yahweh also has many attributes that we are called to mimic. And theologians call these Yahweh's communicable attributes. It is these we are to imitate his love. His mercy, His justice, His long-suffering, His grace, they're to be evident in our lives. Paul teaches us to imitate Yahweh by demonstrating the same kind of love that He has shown to us. That's what he says in the next verse here. Be imitators of Yahweh, walk in love. Just love like Yahweh loves, right? So the entire Christian life, I think, could be summed up in the idea of as Yahweh's children, we're to walk in love. We're to demonstrate His love to the world in which we live. Now, if you're going to imitate somebody, what is the prerequisite? You have to know them, right? 
You can't imitate someone you don't know anything about. And the, if you really want to imitate somebody, you have to study them. You have to figure out, okay, what are they are, how their mannerisms. That's, again, this idea of an actor. An actor goes through great depths, if they're a good actor, to try to figure out the person they're imitating, the person they're playing the character of. They want to get in character. They want to learn all they can about that person. You can't imitate someone you don't, you don't know. And to know Yahweh, we have to understand who He is as He is revealed in the Word of God. That's the only way we can understand and know Yahweh. He reveals Himself through the Bible. And it's crucial that we come to know Him as He has revealed Himself, not as our culture portrays Him, or not as we would like Him to be. So we need to learn of Yahweh We need to learn of His ways through the written Word of God. That's the only way we're going to come to know Him. This means the more that you know Him, the more you'll you'll be able to imitate Him. So what's the primary pursuit then of the believer? It's to know Yahweh. Because if we're going to be like Him, we have to know what He's like. We have to know, and again, the only way that comes, the only way we get any understanding of Yahweh is through the Scriptures. The whole Bible is the self-revelation of Yahweh. It's His self-disclosure. That just means we have to be diligent about our time with Him. There's no shortcuts to this. It's time spent in the Word. I know I harp on this a lot, but that's why this is important. If you're not spending time in the Bible, how are you going to live the Christian life? You say, I've read it before. You've got to continually read it over and over. It's a cleansing effect. It's a transforming effect as we spend time in the Word of God because, it, people, it is the living Word of God. It changes us. So, to say the least, living the Christian life is not easy. If it was easy, everybody would do it. <laughs> it's not natural. It's supernatural. It can only be done as we walk in dependence of the Spirit of God. Now, in, closing, in this closing section of 1 Thessalonians, Paul is giving instructions to the believers at Thessalonica, and he tells them how they are to treat the leaders in the church. We looked at that, and then he gets into how they are to treat one another, And now we come to a new relationship, the relationship between the believer with their Lord. And beginning at verse 16 and going down through 22, Paul gives a series of exhortations, a series of commands that deal with the believer's inner life, a relationship to Yahweh Himself. We're going to look at these three verses this morning. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Yeshua for you. Now, if Paul would have said, rejoice a lot. Pray when you get some time. Give thanks when you feel pretty good. Okay, I could do that. I'd say, yeah, Lord, I can handle that. But that's not what he said, okay? He said, rejoice always. Pray Without ceasing, give thanks in every circumstance. Okay, so to do this, I find myself constantly crying out to God for the strength, the ability to live what He's called me to do. That's where we're supposed to be. Now, John Stott, surprisingly, I think, in my opinion, he argues this. He said, these commands are not directed to us individually, 
but rather to the church regarding our public worship. Joy and happiness are not at our command to turn on and off like a tap. Okay, I would agree with them that it's we can't turn this on and off like a tap in our flesh, but I really think these will be manifest if we're walking in the Spirit of God. And listen, believers, if we're not doing these things individually, day to day, how are we supposed to do them when we gather together? Yeah, I get, exactly. We're not going to know how to do this. We're not going to, you know, okay, just when we're together, then we'll be joyful. Then we'll rejoice. I'm not rejoicing on my own, but when I get together, I can rejoice. I don't know. That just doesn't seem right to me, okay? I think all these things are duties of Christians, whether corporately, as we're gathered in an assembly, or individually. This is how we are to live at all times and in all places. Let's look at the first one. Rejoice always. The word rejoice here is Cairo, and it means to be full of cheer. It's a present active imperative, which again means it's a command. In the Greek it says, always rejoice. The emphasis is on the adverb, at all times be rejoicing. This is one of approximately 70 New Testament commands to rejoice. 70 in the New Testament. I think God wants us to rejoice, right? Now, this verse right here in Thessalonians, this is the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. Anybody know what the shortest verse in the English New Testament is? Hey, good job, (laughs) y'all. Y'all got that one memorized, huh? Jesus wept. That's right. That's the shortest in the English, but this is the shortest in the Greek. So if you want to help your memorization, memorize this one, okay? It's even shorter, okay? (laughs) But it's a good verse to memorize, all right? <clears throat> All right. Let's remember the context here. Okay? And this is really important. Context is king. We talk about that all the time. Okay? Can't just take a verse out and put it in a fortune cookie and this is your verse, life or whatever. It's a context. All right? Context is king. Now, he is not writing to believers who are on vacation in the Florida Keys. Okay, you got that? I mean, think of your favorite, to me it's the Florida Keys. That's the best place to go. I don't have one bit of problem rejoicing always when I'm down there. When I'm in the water, I'm rejoicing. When I'm on, I'm re- just everything there is call for rejoice. Okay? To me. That's, that's my happy place. Okay? He's not writing to people on vacation here. He is writing this to new believers who were suffering persecution because of what they believed in. Does that make a difference in this verse? It should, okay? Look what he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3 and 4. He says that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know we're destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. So he's talking about, you know, don't be moved by the afflictions. You're going to suffer afflictions. We told you this was going to happen. He'd already dealt with them on this. And what's also interesting is Paul has already noted the joy that the Thessalonians were experiencing in the midst of their suffering. In one six, he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So these believers were imitating Yahweh. They were rejoicing in the midst of their suffering. And Paul's just saying, listen guys, just want to remind you, as this command, keep on rejoicing always. All right, Always be that way. And in the immediate context here, all right, the context is the Thessalonians, they're suffering, and he's telling them rejoice. But in the immediate context here, the command always rejoice just follows Paul's exhortation in the previous verse that said, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always rejoice, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So he's saying, listen, don't retaliate when people hurt you, when people attack you, people do you wrong. Don't retaliate. Seek their highest good. And then he says, always rejoice. That's connected. This is not some separate, you know, thing. The context is connected here. All right, so people are doing us wrong. We're trying to do the best for them, and we're rejoicing in the midst of being attacked. This is the same exact thing that Yeshua tells his disciples in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Same thing. He's saying, you guys, people are going to come against you. They're doing evil to you. Hey, just rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad here are, again, our present imperatives. Christ is commanding them. That's the imperative. They're to be continually rejoicing. That's the present tense. Be glad. And the Lord's disciples did this. Okay? They actually not just heard it. They did it. They lived it out. And their reaction did not come from their own nature. God, by His grace, enabled them to rejoice. And Acts 5 that is, describes the disciples in their suffering. It says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Yeshua, and they let him go. Okay? That's um, the disciples. They're, they're manifesting God's character. They're preaching the gospel as God had told them to do. And they're suffering, and they get beat. Okay? Now, what's your response? Okay, I'm done, God. If you can't even take care of me, I'm not doing this anymore. All right, this is too painful. No, that wasn't their response. The response is kind of crazy, okay? It says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Why? They're rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for His name. Yeshua tells them in Matthew 5, 12 to rejoice And they left there after being beaten, rejoicing. Why? Because they were sadomasochists and they liked being beaten? No, not at all. They were rejoicing they had been considered worthy to suffer for Christ. Because he talks about suffering. And he talked about this is going to happen to them. And they're just rejoicing in it. The next verse says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Yeshua. So the beating didn't slow them down, didn't hinder them a bit. They just kept right on doing what they were doing. They did what they got beat for, and they kept doing it. Not hindered by these authorities, whatever. What an incredible example. These early disciples, they proclaimed Christ, and they suffered for it. Just like we're hearing with about the martyrs today in other countries. They're suffering for 
the cause of Christ. It doesn't seem to hinder them. They just keep marching on, keep doing what they're doing. You know, James told the believers basically the same thing. In James 1, 2, and 3, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So, given their difficult circumstances, this command to rejoice always has to be viewed not primarily as a matter of feelings, but obedience. So rejoicing always doesn't mean that you always go around with a smile on your face, always upbeat, always happy. That's not what it's saying. If rejoicing always means you're always upbeat and never feeling sadness, then we have a problem. Because neither Yeshua nor Paul were always happy. When Yeshua faced the cross, the author of Hebrews said this, In the days of his flesh, Yeshua offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Reverence. Now this doesn't sound like rejoicing, right? You read that and you say, well, how's, how's this rejoicing? But notice how Paul describes himself in 2 Corinthians 6.10. He says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. <laughs> Can you figure that out? I'm sorrowful, but I'm rejoicing. Okay, yeah, I'm not, I'm not happy about my circumstance, not happy with what I'm going through, but I'm rejoicing. How can you be sorrowful and yet rejoicing? Well, look what he says in Romans. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, he doesn't say, hey, exhort those who weep to stop it and rejoice. Stop weeping, you guys need to rejoice. No. Rejoicing is not about how you feel. I think that Paul helps us to understand how we rejoice always with what he says to the Philippians. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Always. And again, let me repeat this for you. Rejoice, okay? Rejoice, the word rejoice and the word always here are the same Greek words as in our text. And notice it doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. You can't always do that, okay? You can't always do that. It says rejoice in the Lord. That you can always do, okay? I don't always like the way things are going. And if I'm going to rejoice always, it has to be in the Lord. I can't rejoice in people because they come and go. I can't rejoice in circumstances because they're constantly changing. And I often don't particularly like them, okay? But I can always rejoice in the Lord because He is constant. You show me a person rejoicing in the midst of conflict, and I'll show you somebody who knows God. For example, Paul in Acts 16, he's been beaten, he's been put in the inner prison in stocks for preaching the gospel, and his response is this. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. All right, listen, they were beaten, okay, which would have been a severe beating. Their backs would have been bloody. The stocks they put them in would stretch them as far as possible. They're in the inner prison, which means there's no lights, there's no windows down here. You don't push the button when you need to go to the bathroom. You're just there, okay? And you just, you got the picture, okay? It's a miserable place. And they said, hey, Paul says, hey, Silas, let's sing. What hymn you want to sing? Yeah. And they just break out singing. How, how does that affect the people around them? You know? I mean, there's, what is wrong with these people? You know? It shows that these people are different than anybody else we know, okay? 
I mean, honestly, can you in the slightest way relate to this? I see Christians, they get mad at God because they got a flat tire. Why would God let that happen? I'm like, are you serious? I mean, I'm serious. People have actually said that. How could God allow this? I'm like, it's a flat tire. Fix it and get on with your life for crying out loud. I'm like, you know, you've been listening to too much health, wealth, gospel if you think, you know, I can't even get a flat tire. All right? We're not rejoicing in circumstances. We're rejoicing in our God who controls all circumstances. If you know God, if you really know Him, you're always going to have reason to rejoice. So to rejoice always means that we must make this deliberate choice to focus on the Lord and the unfathomable riches that we have in Him, not on our circumstances. A Christian's joy is not natural joy that ebbs and flows, you know, depending on the circumstances around us. It's a supernatural joy that comes from God and it's rooted in our relationship with Him. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. We can still have it. Well, what do we have to rejoice about? Well, let me give you a few things, I think. We can always rejoice in who Yahweh is. I mean, we could pick out many attributes of God to rejoice in. One of my favorite attributes that strengthens me in the midst of all kinds of things is the sovereignty of God. It's funny, it's the one attribute a lot of people don't even like. I mean, when they really understand what it is, okay? God is the sovereign ruler of the universe who controls all things, okay? And when we understand that, then there's just this peace and calm that comes over us. It's like, this is awesome, you know? It's okay. You know, when King Uzziah died, Isaiah found his comfort in the fact that, hey, God's still on the throne. Isaiah 6.1, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You know, if you don't understand the background here, this verse doesn't say that much, but Uzziah was a military leader. He was a military genius, and he had protected and ruled over Israel for 52 years, and nobody messed with them when Uzziah was in control, okay? Let's put it in the vernacular of today. Trump's president, and we got China and Russia threatening nuclear war. Who's worried? Because Trump can take care of them and no problem, all right? But then Trump dies, and you're like, oh, no, now what do we do? That's what happens here. Listen, in the current situation here, Tiglath-Pileser, who was the Assyrian general, was on their horizon threatening Israel. But they're like, it's cool. Uzziah's, he's king. They ain't going to mess with us. Uzziah dies, and they're like, oh, no. We're going to be in trouble. And so, Uzziah died, but guess who's on the throne? God. So he's like, hey, it's okay. God's still on the throne. Everything's okay. Relax. That's what we need to do, people. When we're going through a rough patch, we just need to lift up our eyes and say, hey, God's still on that throne. Nobody's dethroned him. And you can't steal my joy when I know my loving Heavenly Father is in charge of everything. Every circumstance is under His control. Nothing happens outside His control. Nothing. And if it does, then He's not sovereign. But He is sovereign, so it doesn't. And furthermore, He controls all things for my good. Romans 8.28 We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All of them. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now, I know that sometimes we don't like what's good for us. We don't like the situation we're going through. 
We don't have to rejoice in the circumstances. We can rejoice in the God who is teaching us and growing us and maturing us through the circumstance. God loves us and He's on our side. We can always rejoice in that. Now, another thing that, according to Scripture, we can rejoice in is our election. Okay? Look at Luke 10, 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy. Nothing shall hurt you. That would be cause for great joy. I mean, I would love it. Okay? To have power over the enemy, to have the power to reign over the deep state and crush them, crush the evil in our government, crush the evil that so engulfs this country and can't get hurt by anything? I'd love that. That would be exciting. And it had to be exciting to them. But he says this in the next verse, Nevertheless, don't rejoice in that, that the spirits are subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He tells the disciples, rejoice in your election. That's funny because many people today get really upset about the doctrine of election. But Yeshua said, election should bring us great joy. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life, and no matter how tough things get here, rejoice in the fact that we'll spend eternity with the Lord. That's a, that's a given. Look at Revelation 20.15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he's thrown in the lake of fire. If you've trusted Christ, you can rejoice that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. When was it written there? From eternity, okay? Before you ever were, came into existence, before the worlds were existence, God got out the book and He wrote your name. It's like, okay, my name's there. It's always there. It's been there from the foundations of the earth. It will always be there. I'm safe. I am secure. That's something we can rejoice in, people. My salvation, my destiny is unshakable. I'll never be subject to the judgment of God because Christ bore that for me. I can always rejoice that God has chosen me to be His child. You know, I, I see people who, kids, people that get adopted, and they seem to struggle with that. Adoption is like, you know, when you have a kid, you just get what you get, but a person who adopts someone says, I choose you. I think that's kind of special. You know, it seemed to me that if you were adopted, you would think, this is pretty cool. I know they struggle with the fact that some reason their parents didn't want them for some reason, but hey, somebody did, and they chose you, okay? That's pretty cool. We've been adopted. Adopted as children of God. Now, all this talk about joy and rejoicing, the church, the church you have to understand, is unique in the fact that believers found joy in the midst of the worst situations, right? Well, Stoicism did that also, okay, in this time. But Stoicism had a dispassionate indifference, somewhat um, approach. There wasn't anything like the Christian ideal, okay? Epictetus exclaimed this. He said, show me a man who, though sick, is happy, though in danger is happy, though dying is happy, though condemned to exile is happy, though in disrepute is happy, show me him by the gods I will fain see a Stoic. That was the Stoic position, all right? But the joy of the Stoic is not rooted in its relationship with God. It's not based on hope that arose out of a knowledge of God. 
It's just this separation from the world about it. And I just, whatever, it's destiny, it's my destiny, I'll just smile and get through it. The Christian joy is different than that. Christian joy is rooted in the gospel and it's infused with hope and it grows in its relationship with God. Now, if you're looking at this command, always rejoice and you think, that's impossible. We can't always rejoice. What he's saying is impossible. It, impossible, it can't be done. You're right. From a hu- human viewpoint, it's not natural. It is, however, supernatural. And Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the next one? Joy. <laughs> it's a fruit. It's a product of the Spirit. That's supernatural. It's a product of the Spirit-controlled life. So, if we're walking in the Spirit, we can always rejoice. Alright, next command. Pray without ceasing. Alright, one thing I think that should be crystal clear from this verse, it's God's will that we pray. This seems to be a difficult discipline for many Christians. And sometimes, you know, we struggle to know, what's the will of God for my life? Well, let me tell you what the will of God is for your life. Pray without ceasing. I don't know everything about the will of God for your life, but I know that's the will of God for your life. Okay? God wants you to pray. Now, the word pray here is the general word, prosyukomai. It's the most common New Testament word for pray. It could mean praise, it could mean thanks, it could mean confession, it could mean petition, it could mean intercession. Could mean submission. It's just a general word for prayer. Now, then he says, pray without ceasing. And Greek writers use the adverb adialiptos, translated here as without ceasing, to describe a hacking cough. A person with a bad cough, they don't cough continuously, but it's often and repeated. This word adialiptos is also used to speak of Military attacks. An army would attack a city, but not succeed. Well, they'd regroup and attack over and over until they got victory. So without ceasing is a word that basically means reoccurring. It doesn't mean nonstop talking to God. i got to just pray all the time. Well, you're not going to get much else done, okay? But it's this attitude of prayer that you're always lifting up things to God. Adioliptos, without ceasing, appears only four times in the New Testament. Two other times in this letter, once in Romans, each of the passages, it has to do with prayer. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Again, adioliptos. We're just constantly, over and over, praying for you. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, what you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Again, adioliptos, over and over, constantly, repeatedly. Romans 1, 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, adioliptos, I make mention of you. Now, adioliptos is what grammarians call an iterative customary present of what regularly occurs. It describes prayer as an attitude which regularly breaks forth throughout the day in various aspects of prayer, confession, praise, petition for others, personal requests to God. 
I think a good example of, of what he's talking about here, adioliptos, over and over, continually continue, just offer it up, is found in the, the text where Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the pagan king Artaxerxes, he was sad in the king's presence. And this is kind of a serious offense, and so he's a little bit nervous here about his countenance. And he explains to the king that he's sad because his home city, Jerusalem, was desolate and was, was destroyed. So then Nehemiah says, the king said to him, what are you requesting? What do you need from me? So he does this. So I prayed to God, and I said to the king. I think that's a beautiful picture, people. Nehemiah is silent, and the king's asking him. And so before he answers the king, he says, oh God, give me wisdom. Give me favor. You know, I pray he doesn't take my head off, but he listens to my request. He's praying to God while he's responding to the king. This is a great habit to get into. Before talking, pray. <laughs> Maybe all times before we talk. But, you know, I mean, especially you're in a serious situation. You're before a leader. You're before somebody. You know, pray. Ask God. It's funny because I did this Monday. I had a doctor's appointment, a wellness appointment. And I just was so frustrated because I'm like, I'm not putting a mask on. Not going to do it. If they still push this stuff, I'll just leave it. I'm telling them. Call me when you get rid of this because I'm done with this nonsense, okay? So as I walk in the door, I'm praying, Lord, give me grace to handle this without getting angry, without, you know, tearing these people apart. It's not their fault. They're supposedly doing what they're told to do. So I walk in the office, and there's people sitting there with no masks. And I was like, oh, cool. All the people that worked there had masks on. And I'm like, so I walk over, I'm like, why? Y'all still under mask mandate? Oh, no. <laughs> That really confused me. I said, so you're not under mandate to wear a mask? No. Why are you wearing masks? Oh, it's flu season. I think we've had that before. And then I tried to explain to them that masks don't work at all for stopping any kind of virus, anything. And then they just, you know, of course, they're doctors, people. So they don't, yeah, they don't want to believe in it. But I challenged them. I said, do some research. Instead of blindly putting that thing on, do some research. People don't do that today, people. They just follow. They just follow the crowd. It's sad, but anyway, I prayed as I walked in there because I really wanted, I didn't want to, I can get caustic. <laughs> Especially about stuff like this, that if people would just do a little research, they'd stop doing some of the dumb things they do. But we're following. Oh, they do it. I got to do it. All right. What is prayer? Bottom line, Prayer is talking to God, right? That's a prayer. People get, you know, what is prayer? How do I do it? It's just talking to God. Talk to Him like you would, you know. You don't have to talk in King James, you know. Oh, thou mightiest God is too, you know. No, you don't need to do it. He's just talk to Him, okay? But primary prayer is asking God for things. Now, I know we should come to God with more than asking. We should come with confession, thanksgiving, praise. And in a broad sense, Prayer includes all of that. But seeking, speaking precisely, prayer is asking God for something. There's a story about D.L. Moody. He made a visit to Scotland in the 1800s. An opening, <clears throat> opening line of one of his talks with a local grade school, he opens with this rhetorical question. He says, what is prayer? These are grade school kids, okay, in the 1800s. To his amazement, hundreds of children raised their hands. 
What? You ask a question, everybody's hand went up. So he calls on a boy near the front. The boy stood up and said this, Prayer is an offering up Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ, by the help of the Spirit, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Anybody know where the boy came up with that? That's the Westminster Catechism, question number 178. See, here's a weird thing. They used to teach people about the Bible and about God through a catechism. Question and answer. They teach them the question, they teach them the answer. <laughs> they don't teach them anything today. They're trying to teach them that boys and boys, girls aren't boys. Ugh. It's a mess, okay? Well, to this, Moody responded to this boy by saying, Thank God, son, that you were born in Scotland. Because they taught them, okay? This was, they taught the kids grew up knowing this stuff. Be sure to notice the main thing here. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. That's the main meaning of prayer. With confession of sins, with thankful acknowledgement of His mercies, these go along with the expressed desires. But the essence of prayer is the expression of our dependence upon God through request. Now think about this for a moment. God's will is that we as creatures Ask Him for things. We've already established that. This is a will of God. We'll talk about that. The verse, these section of verses closes with that. But here's what I want you to understand. It's not just God's will that you pray. It's His delight. Proverbs 15.8 The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh. But the prayer of the upright is acceptable to Him. I don't like this translation. It's really weak. Most translations don't put it this way. The Hebrew word here is rason, and it's better translated as delight. Young's gets it correct. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to Yahweh, and the prayer of the upright is his delight. I think you should always have a Young's translation with you when you're looking at your scripture. <clears throat> you want to get a little trans excuse me, a little translation, look at it. My problem with Young here is Jehovah. There's no such word. Okay, that is totally off base. Anybody who uses that word doesn't really understand God's name at all. Okay, his name, there's no J's, you know, in the Hebrew language. Okay, it's Yahweh. Okay, so that kind of throw you off. I, uh, I heard a prophetess, a modern day prophetess, you know, they're, uh, yeah, I forget what her, something green, but she's, something green ministries, and she's a prophetess, and everybody's, well, you got to hear what she's saying you know, on Truth Social, but this prophetess, and she's saying the elections are going to be overturned, I'm like, I don't need a crystal ball to know that, okay, it's going to happen, all right, but so I went and I listened to this lady, and she's speaking as if she is God, you know, she's, I, I say this to you, I Jehovah, and I said, <laughs> stop, you don't have a clue who God is if you're using the name Jehovah. Okay? You just don't know what you're talking about. But she went on, I mean, got calm at times and yelling at times. Uh, and she's just talking like she's God and she's telling us Americans what we're supposed to do. And people are falling for this nonsense. It's just sad to me. It's sad to me, the ignorance. Because what she is saying, she's saying is from God. What does that mean? That's just as important as this, because this is from God. So if that's from God and this is from God, 
You better have an addendum in the back here where you're adding these other things. Oh, I got to put what Miss Green said because this is the Word of God also. That's nonsense. You don't need that. I better stop because we're going to get into this in a couple of verses here in, in the text, okay, about prophecy. But it's on my mind. Twelve minutes of her going on and on about... It wasn't easy. It really wasn't. I'm like cringing, but she'd get soft and kind and then she... You know, yell like, God said, I told you, you better do this. I'm like, wow. Just terrible. Okay. (laughs) If prayer is asking God for things, and He delights in our prayer, then God loves to be asked for things. Why does Yahweh delight in prayers? I think it's because prayer is an act of dependence. It's an opportunity to express our devotion to Yahweh and a dependence upon Him. Because you see, when I pray to God and I say, Lord, I need help on this, I'm saying, God, I need you. I need this. That's dependence. That's where we should be. The biggest reason we don't pray is that we don't feel a dependence upon God. Now, if this is true, and it is, then we have to admit that prayerlessness is a declaration of self-sufficiency. I really believe that statement itself should change your prayer life. Because not to pray is to say, I got this, God, stand back. I'll handle this. If I need you, I'll call out. But until I do, just stand aside there, Lord. You know, because so often we think we can do it ourselves. It's like Veronica was talking about this morning with addiction. You know, as long as you think, I got this. Again, that's what the Bible says. Let him who thinks he stand, you think you got it, then take heed lest he fall. It's not the person who knows I got a problem here. That's not the one that needs to be afraid. We think we can do so much ourselves. You know, and I've, I've seen Christians make fun of people who pray for a parking place near the building or whatever. I just, I don't think it's wrong to ask God for anything. Because I just, when you're asking Him, then you're saying, hey, Lord, could you do this for me? I mean, I wouldn't do it. I don't mind walking a little. But I don't, I don't fault anybody for praying about something. You know, if you're calling out to God, you're saying, God, I, I really need some help here. You know, ever since Adam and Eve, man has vastly overestimated his ability. So we think, I don't need to pray because this is something I can handle. And our biggest problem is admitting we need God's help. You have to be honest with God. Lord, I admit I'm inadequate. I'm helpless. I need your help in this situation. And as long as you think you're self-sufficient, prayer really can't have any meaning for you. You know, the Lord says, always rejoice. You're like, I can't do that. Pray without ceasing. Oh, okay. I got to pray constantly so I'll be able to rejoice constantly. Prayer is an act of dependence. Yahweh, I need you. I need your help. It's a declaration of dependence upon Yahweh. It's our way of saying, God, I really can't do this without you. I need you here. I need your strength. I need your help. So let me ask you, do you pray? Or 
Are you so self-sufficient you don't really need God's help? You know, Paul had a prayer list for the church that he was always praying. That's probably not a bad idea at all, you know. People ask you to pray for them, keep track of it, pray for them. I just have this weird belief that prayer works. <laughs> I mean, I just, I really do. I don't think God commanded us to do this just, you know. God works through prayer, okay? I don't understand how it all works, but I know that He does. And I know that when you look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we find believers praying to the Lord. Abraham prayed, Joseph prayed, David prayed, Daniel prayed. All these examples of believers bringing their needs and their praises to Yahweh. And Daniel even prayed when to do so would bring great problems. No one's allowed to pray. Daniel opens up his windows and he prays, okay? Prayer was a priority for them. And I think we can surmise that one of the crucial reasons for their deep spirituality was that prayer had a priority in their lives. The same is true in the New Testament. We see our Lord gave a priority to prayer. I mean, if He needed to pray, I think we do. And you go through the book of Acts, you see the early believers praying privately and corporately. Paul's epistles are filled with examples of his own prayers, demonstrating that he gave a priority to that spiritual discipline. It seems to be tough for us today. I'm not sure why. I guess either we don't believe it works or we don't believe we need Him. But prayer is vital to a believer's health. I don't think you should ever read the Bible without asking God to open your mind to the truths that are in there. Prayer should be a life priority. It connects me with Yahweh and it connects me with Yahweh's provision for my life. That uh, great preacher Robert Murray McShane once said, What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. That's a powerful statement because you, when you're on your knees before God, you're pretty open and honest and that's, you know, hopefully you're not trying to lie to God, you know. <clears throat> Let's move on to our last verse. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Yeshua for you. Give thanks. This is a Greek word, euharisteo, and it means to be grateful, to express gratitude. Again, it's a present active imperative. It's a command. This is something we're commanded to do. Now, the little phrase, in all circumstances, is enpas in the Greek, and it means in connection with everything that occurs. No exceptions, no excuses, nothing is outside these parameters. We're always to be giving thanks. Now, you might question, how can we be thankful for everything? Well, I want you to notice here, we don't give thanks for everything. We give thanks in everything. We recognize God's sovereign hand in charge and not blind fate, not chance. So we can give thanks in the circumstances. Let me tell you a story about Corey Ten Boone in her book, The Hiding Place, she relates an incident which I think kind of illustrates this principle. She and her sister Betsy had been transferred to the worst German prison camp they had seen yet at Ravensbrück. And upon entering the barracks, they found it extremely overcrowded and flea infested. And their scripture reading that morning was 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Go figure. 
And he reminded them to rejoice always, to pray constantly, and to give thanks in all circumstances. So Betsy told Corey to stop and thank the Lord for every detail of the new living quarters. At first, she flatly refused, said, I'm not giving thanks for the fleas. <laughs> but Betsy persisted, so she finally succumbed. And then during the months that they spent there, they were surprised to find how openly they could hold Bible study and prayer meetings without any interference from the guards. And it was several months later that they learned that the guards would not enter that barracks because of the fleas. They didn't want, they didn't want to get involved in that, so they just left them alone. Now, I'm sure there's some fleas in your life. You know, things you're not really too happy about. But we're to have an attitude of thanksgiving because you never know what God is using those things for or that circumstance for in your life. But most of us, we're not really thankful for the fleas in our lives. So how do we develop a habit of thankfulness to God in every situation? Well, first and most importantly... Again, it comes, we're back to this again, but it comes from understanding of the sovereignty of God and His sovereign goodness. If you know that God loves you and He's sovereign over everything, that should bring peace. Giving thanks for all things is an outrageous idea unless you have a deep biblical theology of Yahweh's sovereign goodness. Should Jacob have been thankful over the loss of his two sons? I love this verse. Genesis 42. 30. I love it because I know the end. Okay? But I've been here myself and so have you. And Jacob their father said to them, You bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Is Joseph no more? No, not at all. This is what he thinks. Simeon is no more. He's still okay too. And now you take Benjamin. All this has come against me. I love this because... This is his perspective. My life's a mess. These circumstances are against me. Not at all. These circumstances are preparing to save his whole family. But he didn't understand it. So he's frustrated with God. If he just would have known what was going on. He couldn't see it. He just needed to trust in Yahweh. How about Joseph? Should he have been thankful that his brothers hated him and sold him into slavery? If you don't have this verse memorized, you really need to. He's talking to his brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me. Did they? Did they mean evil? Absolutely. They hated him. He's daddy's favorite. We hate him. We want to kill him. Well, let's sell him into slavery. We'll make a little money. You know, they just didn't like him, but he says this, watch, but God meant it for good. So the thing that they did because they hated him, God meant that for good to preserve the lives of the very people who did it because they were evil. Being sold into slavery was a part of the all things that God works together for good for His chosen ones. This is how we can give thanks. If you understand God is sovereign, you can just always be thankful. What's a Calvinist say when he falls down the stairs? Glad that's over. Psalm 104 says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Why? Because that's the way you always enter God's presence, with thanksgiving. William Hendrickson writes this, When a person prays without thanksgiving, 
He has clipped the wings of prayer so that it cannot rise. I believe that Paul teaches this very thing in Philippians. He said in Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, the words with thanksgiving here are the Greek meta euharistia, and meta with the genitive means with. But this is meta and the accusative, and it never means with, it means after. So he says, after thanksgiving, make your request. Have you ever done that? That's how I start all my prayer time, is always beginning with thanksgiving. Thank you for this. And when you start counting your blessings, and you're going through the list, and you're just, and then you get done, and you're like, what was I supposed to ask you? I'm good, thanks, Lord. I'm good. I just realized how good I had it. But once I spent all this time thanking you, I guess I really don't need it. Too often we just run into the presence, give me, the, give me, give me, I need, I need, I need. And we're not focused on what we already have. After Thanksgiving, he says, make your request known to God. If you have a thankful heart, people, your prayers are going to be right. And I'll tell you, I am convinced that the single greatest act of personal worship that you can give to God is a thankful heart. A thankful heart. Job said, Naked I came into my, from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. Yahweh gave. Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. In other words, Yahweh, I thank you. I thank you when you give. I thank you when you take away. Just thanks for who you are. The Spirit-filled Christian is evident by his ongoing thanksgiving. Expressed in the name of the Christ to the Father. And this thanksgiving not only recognizes the essence of Yahweh, but His sovereign involvement in all of our life. It recognizes that all that happens in the believer's life is from Yahweh. That every good and perfect gift is from Him, as James says in 117. That even suffering is a gift of God, Philippians 129. Paul said it's been given unto you not only to believe, that's a gift. We know faith is a gift from God. Not only to believe, but also to suffer for His name. So Paul is saying suffering is a gift from God, just like faith. You say, well, that's a gift I could do without. Well, there's a reason for it, okay? There's a reason for it. We recognize and respond with thanksgiving for God's gracious involvement in our lives as a result of His incredible wisdom. And so in everything that happens to me, because God is controlling those happenings, because God is governing my life, I give thanks to God in everything. That He loves me, that He's in control, that He's guiding the things in my life. That He's going to work all things for His glory and my good. Now after each one of these exhortations, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, we're told to do this because this is the will of God in Christ Yeshua for you. Now, virtually all commentators agree that this refers to the previous three commands, not just to the third. So rejoicing always is the will of God. Praying without ceasing is the will of God. Giving thanks in all circumstances, this is the will of God. Now, when the Bible talks about the will of God, it can be referring to one or two things. God's sovereign will 
his providence, his predetermined plan for everything that happens in the universe. Or his moral will, that which is revealed in the Bible that tells us how to live. This is talking about the moral will of God. It's God's will. This is what he wants from you. It's not his sovereign will. If it was, this would always happen. God's sovereign will is always carried out. His moral will, on the other hand, is not. So we could ask, do all believers rejoice always? Do they all pray without ceasing? Do they all give thanks in all circumstances? No. But it's God's moral will that they do these things, but often they don't. Believers, this is how we're called to live. If you want to know whether you're controlled by the Spirit or not, all you need to do is ask yourself, do I rejoice always? Do I constantly pray? Am I increasingly thankful? And if the answer is no, then you need to work on the Spirit's control in your life. Now the question is, hopefully, how are we controlled by the Spirit? How's that happen? Well, Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be controlled by the Spirit of God. And if you want to know how to do that, I think it's simple. You go to the parallel passage in Colossians that says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, and everything in the name of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, Wives, submit to your husbands as fitting in the Lord. See, what you have to understand is let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly and be controlled by the Spirit. Both have these results. If you read the Ephesians passage, these are the results. Singing, thankfulness, all these. This is the results of being controlled by the Spirit. And so these are the results of being controlled by the Word of God. So when the word, we put the Word of God in our lives, we can be controlled by the Spirit. And Paul's telling the, the Colossians, This is how you do it. You let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word dwell is a present active imperative of anoikeo, and it means to live in, to be at home in. In other words, the Word of God is to be at home in our lives. So Paul is calling upon believers to let the Word of God take up residence and be at home in your lives. As we study the Word of God and submit to its teaching, the Spirit will empower and control our lives. If you don't know the Word of God, you can't expect to be controlled by the Spirit. We need to spend time in the Word of God. How we keep coming back to that same thing? Spend time in the Word of God. Read the Word. Memorize the Word. Meditate on the Word. People, this is how we connect with God. This is how we learn to grow. We don't need some prophetess telling you what you have to do. Just be familiar with the Word of God. Know what God expects of you. Know what God wants of you. Be controlled by the Spirit of God. The more the Word you put in your life, the more the Spirit is able to control you because He uses the Word of God. That's why it's so important. And people, again, we have to have a conviction that this is the Word of the living God. And as we pour over it and as we memorize it, then the Spirit of God has the opportunity to lead us, control us, guide us. And when we get off some path, He brings the Word of God to our remembrance and says, hey, remember this? Oh, yeah. But see, if you haven't put that in, how's He going to guide you? How's He going to steer you? How's He going to lead you? And that's why we keep going over and over because you forget, right? Are you prone to forget things? I am, you know. 
I mean, we're prone to forget how important forgiveness is. And then we're reading the text and it's like, oh, I'm supposed to forgive the way God forgave me. Wow. Again, because we're imitating Yahweh, right? So we do it like he did it. So forgiveness, it's mandatory in the Christian life. And you're like, oh, yeah, I got to deal with that. People, we cannot, cannot begin to overstress the importance of the word of God. If you want to live a victorious Christian life, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, simple text today, short text. I think an area that we fall so short, though, Lord. We get so caught up in the world around us that we're not being the people you've called us to be. I pray that our heart's desire, Lord, would be to honor you through our lives. That we would be image bearers of you. That when people look at us, they would see you. They would see forgiveness. They would see mercy. They would see love. They would see compassion. Dear God, strengthen us, Lord, through your word that we might be the people you've called us to be. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Gary. Um, we have preached various aspects of this sermon many times. So I wish you could preach this one six years ago. <laughs> and I forgot the other question, so I was going to ask you. Okay, a question from Norm. He says, Hi, David. Doesn't God also want us to grow up and trust Him without bringing every little thing up as want babies? Isn't there a time to be still and simply trust? Yeah, there is, but I don't think there's anything wrong with going before Him. You know, I don't think anything at all. Like I said, God delights, the Scriptures teach, He delights in our request because He's a loving gracious father and he wants to give us things but the idea that we're going to him because of those things and i don't know that normally ever come to a place where we're just like ah okay i got everything i don't need to talk to him i don't need to ask him you know again i think a lot of a lot of our prayer time should be devoted to thanksgiving and i think if you know who you are in christ you know what christ has done for you that shouldn't be hard at all okay so a lot of it, you know, it's just focused on being thankful. Sandra from California. Uh, thanks for teaching. Thankfulness and gratitude are healthy vitamins for our Christian life. When we are down or hopeless, the vitamin of thanks, thankfulness and rejoicing always allows us to be controlled by the Spirit and be, being imitators of God. Thanks, Bereans. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's that whole mentality of thankfulness. And other people are just, they're not thankful because I guess they feel they deserve more than they have. And that goes to pride. You know, you're just, I deserve more. I don't have more, so I'm miserable. You know, the humble spirit, I think, is more like, hey, God, thanks, you know, thanks. 
Doug asks, how do we understand Revelation 3.5 relative to a believer's eternal security? Okay, you're going to make me look it up. I don't have the whole Bible memorized. I know, I should, but I'm working on it. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes and will never erase his book and never have his name erased from the book of life. Okay, so that, I know, people read that and they say, see, God can erase it. This is what's called a litotes. He's, he's expressing the negative or the positive by saying, your name won't be, in other words, your name is never going to be erased from the book of life. Nobody's name ever gets erased. God didn't say, oh my word, did I put that name in there? No, no, let me get that out. I don't want it. Look at how he lives. I'm not putting it. No, God doesn't change his mind, okay, because he knows the end from the beginning. So he puts our name in the book of life. Again, this is called, Grammatical, a light to tease. Okay, you're taking something and expressing it the extreme positive by saying the negative. In other words, he'll never erase your book name from the book of life. Your name's not going to get erased. So you don't need to worry about it. Okay, you can go on, you can live your life. Boy, can how would we live if our conduct, God said, oh man, that's it. Give me that eraser. That name's coming out of the book. No. Thank God, those names don't ever get erased, okay? They're there, they're there permanently, they're there forever. Thank the Lord for that. Do what? Well, yeah, he would have made a mistake if you put your name in there and he shouldn't have, but I guess he didn't know how you were going to turn out, right? Ah, good question here, I love this. Uh, what's the point of praying for someone's salvation if we're chosen from the beginning? Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Jeff. The reason we pray, listen, God said to pray. Okay? God said to pray. I heard an evangelist once say, he gave an altar call, and there's people at the altar, and he says, we need to pray for these people. He says, God can't do anything now. God can't do anything with these people. It is up to them. And I thought, then why would we pray for them? I mean, really, you're praying for God to do something, but you're saying God can't do anything, you know? And I think when you pray for someone's salvation, you're realizing, God, they need you to do something in their life. You know, we have to pray. And again, it's this idea, Jeff nailed it, God told us to do it. All right? I know it's complicated. I know it really is. Well, the elect are going to get saved, right? Absolutely. So why do we pray for it? I don't know, but it's really encouraging to be involved in praying for someone and then watch them trust Christ. You just like, you're not getting a commission, but you get excited. You know, it's like, it's an exciting thing. I prayed for them. I had an investment in them. I'll tell you, people, listen, when you really do pray for somebody, you get invested in their lives. You just do. I mean, I've shared the story with you before, but when I was in the military, I met a guy we became friends. Him and his wife would constantly be around us, but he irritated me to death. Okay? Just certain things, okay? We both went to see his squadron was involved in some really dangerous stuff, and I began to pray for him. And I prayed for him every day. And when I got home and he came back, it was like he was a different person. <laughs> he wasn't. I was a different person. Because I'd been, I cared for him deeply because I invested so much in him in prayer. So it didn't change him much. He did come back safe, but it, it did have a great effect on my life. 
So that's the point. We do it because God said, do it. Someone says, hello. Hi. <laughs> Uh, John says, wonderful message again. God's house should be a house of prayer. I'm always very convicted by that verse. Yeah, it should be. I mean, again, it, it, when we understand what prayer is about, again, that, that thing I share with you, prayerlessness is a declaration of self-sufficiency. That altered my prayer life because I'm saying, God, I don't need you. Lord, help us to never be saying that, but we do. We say it by our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and the opportunity to just look at your word again, Father. May we be open. May we be subject to the Spirit's leading and guidance. Teach us from the word of God, Lord. Help us to be familiar with it, that it guides and leads us in all we do. Amen.